According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to wrap up chapter 4 this morning and be ready for chapter 5. Um, not next week, in two weeks. In two weeks. I will be in Houston next Wednesday morning, so um, I suppose if you still want to meet for prayer, you can meet for prayer. Decided not to. Okay, well then. All right, well then we'll be closed next Wednesday morning. Uh, Lewis will be covering Wednesday evening, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, this is the annual Schaefer Conference that's supposed to be in March, but they kept delaying it and delaying it and delaying it, and finally uh, they're going to have it in June. So that's one week from today. All right, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 says, My son... Give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left, turn your foot from evil. All right, so that's the final portion of uh, the chapter where we are giving you under point three in the outline. But before we get started with that, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon you, Father, in your faithfulness to provide uh, a voice to speak for this hour and uh, just ask for distractions to be set aside and for all the blessings that you have designed for this word on this day. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so point three, which I think is slide 14. <coughs> yes, it is, slide 14. Good to know. The path of righteousness, and one that was actually introduced back in verse 18, the path of the righteous is expanded now in a discourse on heart protection, what I'm calling heart protection, because we are to keep them in the midst of your heart, and we are to watch over your heart, as it says in verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. And I think this is a a realm of application that is not stressed a lot in churches today, and, and a lot of believers I talk to and, and really don't even give it a thought. And with respect to the shepherding of their soul, with respect to the guarding of their heart, why does Philippians say that the peace of Christ that surpasseth understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus? And if that is, is not really any big deal, then why does the Scripture seem to make the emphasis that it does in uh, different applications there? So, We're dealing with it here this morning. Uh, Verse 18, you might recall, says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And so this is a path we don't just want to visit every so often. All right, Gina. This is not a path that we want to witness every so often. Uh, This is a path that we want to stay on long term. We want to stay on this path uh, so that as it gets brighter, as it gets brighter, as it gets brighter, we are indeed walking in the blessings of that truth. All right. 
Last week we covered many of these subpoints already, so I'll just run through the, the slideshow top to bottom and then get caught up to where we were before. As was seen in Proverbs 2.2, attentive ears and inclined hearts are the attitudinal prerequisites to receiving and treasuring. And this is something we dealt with in chapter 2, Proverbs 2.2. Verse 1 says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Notice that's an if in Proverbs 2.1. Not every child is going to. Just because your parents love doctrine doesn't mean you're going to love doctrine. It doesn't mean just because you love doctrine doesn't mean your kids are automatically going to love doctrine. We want to ground them from their childhood, but in their generation they have to stand or fall before the Lord. If you will receive my words, and if you will treasure my commandments within you. It goes on to say, Proverbs 2.2, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Cause your ear to be attentive. Cause your ear to be inclined or eager. It says, incline your heart to understanding. So it's an attitudinal prerequisite. We're not coming to Bible class begrudgingly. We're not coming to Bible class, ah, here we go again. You know, why is my wife always dragging me to this place? And how long is this going to go? And come on and checking my watch every five minutes. Is he almost done yet? Is he almost done yet? All right. The attitude of eagerness ought to be such that an hour later when the pastor says, all right, well, we better close in prayer. We'll pick up here next week. You're like, what? I thought we've only been in class two minutes already. How did that, how did the time fly by like that? That's the eagerness. And we want to be fostering that eagerness. And if we start to notice that that eagerness is gone, find out why. Give it to the Lord. Make it a prayer item. Say, Lord, I don't know why. I just don't seem to have the, the, the appetite I used to have. Why not? Give me that better appetite. Give it back. And uh, ask, and and you shall receive. I'm I'm convinced of that. So, if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. And this, we're we're demanding it. We're crying out for it. You understand? And it's it's not the the take it or leave it attitude that I think too many believers have with respect to Bible doctrine. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, there's a diligence required in this, not just a take it or leave it approach. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So we understand this. This is an attitudinal prerequisite. And it's a dimension of things with respect to the attitude that we studied in our 2 Corinthians series about the attitude of eagerness. All right, It's a step behind. It's a step even even superior to mental to the to the thinking step, right? I think we're custom we're 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 used to that. The idea that okay, I've got things that I do, and before I do those things, there's things ways that I think, right? Thinking precedes doing, being precedes doing, right? But even shaping my thinking then is the attitude. Is it an attitude of eagerness that shapes my thinking? Because if my attitude isn't eager, my thinking won't be either. My thinking won't reflect that. So the attitude lies behind the thinking, the thinking lies behind the doing, and we, uh, we can take it through all these steps. All right. So as was seen in Proverbs 2.2, attentive ears and inclined hearts are the attitudinal prerequisites to receiving and treasuring. It's what we have here in chapter 4. It will come back again to start off chapter 5. And so we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, and then he launches into a section warning this young man about uh, fornication, warning this young man about the sexual sins and the temptations and the struggles that will uh, beset him if he's not on guard. Point B, 
A follow-up pair of imperatives stresses the follow-up mandate to paying attention. That's why this is now an expansion. This is why this is a greater development than what we had in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it was simply, uh, you know, make your ear attentive and incline your heart to understanding. In chapter 4 now, it's going to be expanded with two more imperatives, two more mandates, all right? As it says, do not let them depart from your sight and keep them in the midst of your heart. That's not, those aren't commands we saw in chapter 2, but we see them here. All right, so we realize that the attitude is great, but we have to keep the attitude. We have to maintain the attitude. We can't let them just slip away as they are uh, want to do. All right, do not let them depart from your sight. You know, like a rambunctious three-year-old or a you know a toddler of some sort. If you're not looking, they're gone. Okay, because they've got places to go and things to do and whatever else. And and so it just it's like you you turn your head for just a moment and then you turn back and where'd they go? All right. I think this is the, the aspect of what's being warned about here. We have a hunger for doctrine, but you know, we lost sight of it for a little bit, and then you know, it just kind of drifted. Well, where did it go? I don't know. When did it leave? I don't remember. It's been gone for a while now. Okay. So do not let them depart from your sight. This imperative describes the nature of God's word. <coughs> to disappear and be forgotten once the eye loses sight. You know, Think about the, the precious promises. And if you're not dwelling on those promises, if you're not reminding yourself of those promises, uh, do you get forgetful of them? When's the last time you thought about uh, you know, a, a particular promise that you used to claim all the time? Well, it's been a while. And because it's been a while, as a perishable skill, it's gone. It's away from your thinking until you recycle it back through, dwell on it once again. That's why it's a continuous action on this. I do like James chapter 1 where it talks about looking in a mirror and then forgetting what sort of person you were when you look away. And I think that's a very vivid metaphor, a very vivid description of what it's like with the Word of God. The Word of God is our mirror. And as long as we're staring intently at it, we've got a very good picture of what we are and why we need Christ, <laughs> right? Because in ourselves, we're, we're hopeless. But when we tur- turn away from that mirror, when we stop looking at it intently, when we just kind of glance at it and say, all right, I see what that's like, then where are we? Okay, then we start forgetting, and then the memories uh, start getting perverted, and then we start thinking, yeah, I'm all right, when we're not all right. And a close look at that mirror would would show it to you in in a moment. It says, guard them or keep them. The verb shamer that we study in so many other different contexts, but keep them, guard them in the center of your center, in the midst of your heart, in the core of who you are. It can't be superficial. It's got to be to the core of who you are. And there are so many passages, these are the ones we looked at a week ago, um, that talk about, uh, like Hebrews 4.12, that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. You know, the Word of God is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The heart is who you are. Not the superficial, not the show you put on, not, not the externals, not your body. It's your heart, the innermost part of your being. And that's why it's called the inner man, or sometimes it's called the innermost, the innermost part of your being. So Ephesians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though the outer man, though the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. The different applications there. That's why we want the Word of God in our core, in the centermost part of our being. And that's what We're being admonished here. It says, uh, keep them in the midst of your heart. 
practical benefits to heart protection. Point C, practical benefits to heart protection via the Word of God includes life and health. And uh, something uh, that we saw already in chapter 3, something that will come back again in chapter 12, 13, and 16, is the physical manifestations of a spiritual walk that's right before the Lord. Okay? And as we said last week, uh, we're not promising you health, wealth, and prosperity. We're not promising you that if you're walking right with the Lord, you'll never have phlegm, <laughs> right? Or uh, allergies, or you know, you'll never break your arm or whatever. I mean, goodness, we've got some kids around here that show up with a different cast every other Sunday, and you're thinking, goodness, danger-prone whatever. Um, no, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and believers get cancer, same as unbelievers get cancer. And we're not talking about the... Um, the uh, circumstances of a fallen uh, body living in a fallen world, that's, that just goes with the territory. All right? That's part of that outer man perishing while the inner man is renewed day by day. But what we do see is the, the benefits to a walk that's intimate with the Lord, and it does have physical manifestations. All right? So maybe you do have a sickness, but your attitude makes, mitigates the, the, uh, the effects that you might otherwise get down on yourself, you might otherwise get discouraged, you might otherwise... I've seen some sick people that are happier. I've gone into hospital rooms to visit to encourage people, and they actually ended up encouraging me by the time I walked out of that hospital room. I'm walking back to my car thinking, wait a minute, who was the, who was the patient here? You know, how did that happen? Because they're occupied with Christ, they're in the Word of God, it's shaping their attitude towards whatever the physical thing is that they're, that they're dealing with. All right, so we got the Proverbs there. Proverbs 4.22, that's our text today. You can look back to Proverbs 3.8, or you can look ahead to 12.18, uh, Proverbs 13.17, and the final one is 16.24. Now, now we've got to double up on what we're doing. Why does he say the same thing twice? Why does he repeat himself? What's the value in repetition? What's the point in all that redundancy? Okay. Why does the pastor keep going on and on and on? What are we really talking about here? All right. You'll notice verse 21 now is restated in a slightly different way, but as it says in verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Point D now in the outline. The admonition to watch over the heart. It's repeated from verse 21. See, in verse 21 it says, keep them in the midst of your heart. It's repeated from verse 21, but it's intensified now in verse 23. The actual placement of doctrine within your soul helps to guard your soul. That's the activity of watching over, putting the Word of God in there. Because the Word of God's going to watch over your soul a whole lot better than you will, <laughs> right? A whole lot better than I will. Let me just personalize this. If the Word of God is in there, the Word of God is what's sharper than a two-edged sword. The Word of God is what pierces. The Word of God is the critical judge. In my humanity or my mentality or my attitude, my thinking on something, all right, is um, I may look at something and, and not see what I'm looking at. Or I may look at something and make an excuse for what I'm looking at. I may look at something and go, eh, okay, I'm all right with that. Until the Word of God hits it and says, oh, no, God's not okay with that. Here's what the Word of God has to say on this, on this particular matter. So, it, we have an intensification here in verse 23. Watch over your heart um, occasionally. Is that what it says? Watch over your heart 
every so often. No, it says, with all diligence. With all diligence. See, and that's where I think believers walk away. And they say, well, who's got time for that? All right, that's too much work. Oh, come on. That's why I got a pastor. He does that. All right, I don't want to have to think. Come on, I'm sitting here. I'm just listening to what he has to say. Isn't that enough? Drop 10 bucks in the box and leave me alone. All right, no. Believers get lazy. Carnal mindedness doesn't have time for this because they want to, you know, where your heart is, is what do you pour your, your energy into? What do you pour your, your time and devotion to? Diligent care, this is sub point one now, diligent care must be taken to keep the life springs pure. To keep the life springs pure. Because we, we're given a reason here. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow spring, the springs of life. This is where this, I call this the heart springs. And what comes from these springs? And if it's not pure, what comes from these springs? Okay, what flows from the heart? Well, what kind of heart is it? All right. Makes sense, right? If, is it a hot springs? Is it a cold springs? What is it? What is your heart? And are you, uh, are you guarding it? Are you keeping it? So diligent care must be taken to keep the life springs pure. I think uh, Deuteronomy 4 and 9 addresses this. Obviously, Philippians 4, 6 through 9 addresses this. I think Jesus addressed this when he was talking to the woman at the well and the nature of ourselves becoming sources of water in, uh, in our witnessing, in our ministry to this lost and dying world. But let's start here with these verses, Deuteronomy 4, 9. And we'll see the nature of diligent care. It's not automatic. It's not, uh, you know, in some respects, I... Uh, it bothers me sometimes the attitudes that I encounter with respect to growing, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because that's an imperative in Second Peter to grow. And there's a lot of other imperatives that that feed that, including being on your guard and, and not being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and being oriented to the, the timetable of God that He is not mocked, and all those things. There is so much that imperative of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And too many believers are disobeying that imperative, and they're not growing. And they say, well, why do I have to, why do, I have to do something? to? Shouldn't that just be automatic, right? Uh, shouldn't I just, you know, I've been saved for 20 years. Shouldn't I be older by now? Yeah, you should be older by now, but here's why you're not, <laughs> right? Because you're not obeying the imperative where God is commanding you to grow and following the instructions in which uh, that growth can take place. See, and, and where I think maybe it breaks down in people's thinking is that, well, you know, human beings, they just automatically just kind of happens, you know? They're born, they're babies, they, then they're toddlers, then they're children, and then they're teenagers, and then they're adults, and then they're gone. And, and, and if, you know, you don't have to do anything, and they just grow up. Oh, my goodness. Yes, you do have to do something. You've got to feed them, you've got to nurture them, you've got to change their diapers, you've got to get them to the point where they can feed themselves. There's, a, there's an awful lot of work for something you think just happens all by itself. You know, and yet that's the attitude they take in with doctrine that, well, you know, hey, he's saved, so he'll just grow on his own. Yeah, you end up with feral children that way. You end up with spiritually feral children that way that are just growing on their own. All right. No, it takes diligence. And I don't think it's accidental that, that uh, 
you know, be diligent to present yourself approved before God, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why does 2 Timothy 2.15 require us to be diligent if it's just automatic? It's not automatic. It's the point I'm trying to make. All right, Deuteronomy 4.9. Only give heed. Well, okay. That means I've got to pay attention. That means I'm guarding. That means I'm aware of this. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Oh, it's a discipline. Oh, this takes work. So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. Think about it. The entire generation of those that walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And think about how they blew it. They forgot the God of their redemption. They forgot the miracle of their deliverance. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. Oh, we had it so great in Egypt. Really? Not only are you forgetful, you're flat out delusional. You were slaves in Egypt. You weren't eating all that well. Grumbling over manna. All right. So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. See, it's like herding cats. If you're not keeping an eye on it, they're just going gonna to scatter. They're going to run. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. You know what that does? Well, not only it benefits your sons, it benefits your grandsons. You are passing on that heritage, but it also benefits you. Because your activity of, of discipling, your activity of passing along this heritage, keeps it in your thinking as well. It keeps it fresh in your appreciation and your thankfulness and your, and your awareness. All right. Anyway, I, I can appreciate that and all the, the terms there in that verse. That, uh, that seems like that's not an automatic kind of thing. It doesn't seem easy. It seems like it takes effort on my part. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9. And here again, we want to not only claim the promises, but we want to observe the circumstances in which those promises are given, the obligations and expectations in which God expects me to operate under. I don't just want to... um, claim a verse and say, well, there, that's a promise, and, and yet fail to operate in the uh, circumstances that he, that he placed this imperative in. See, yes, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is true. That is a promise. God will do that if, notice, there are, there's a context around that verse. That verse doesn't say just be a lazy slug and God will bail you out. Is that what it says? All right. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in verse 4. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. How about this? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we see that in this context, we have prayer that's in view, and a consistent, regular, effective prayer life. And... Um, does, that seem, does verse 6 seem to be connected to verse 7? Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It seems to be a consequence, does it not? It seems to be a response to our prayer life. Our decision to not dwell on the problems, as it says, be anxious for nothing. So here's something I'm anxious over. I'm disobeying Scripture. I'm disobeying Scripture because I'm choosing to be anxious. 
I'm choosing to be anxious, and then I'm blaming God that the peace of Christ isn't, isn't guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Why am I accusing God of failing in verse 7 when I'm disobeying verse 6? That's the point. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. So whatever it is that I'm anxious over, my job, my health, my bills, my wife, my whatever, my daughter, it doesn't matter, pick whatever it is, and if you're dwelling on that instead of get, taking that to the Lord in prayer, you're disobeying verse 6. And so don't be shocked if God doesn't manifest verse 7 then as a consequence in your life. So, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that may be the hardest part of all. Because what if his answer is different than what you're asking? Are you still thankful? With thanksgiving. You're asking, to, you want to build a temple, and his answer is no. Your son's going to build a temple. You can't build a temple. So are we going to be like David? Are we going to rejoice? Are we going to offer thanksgiving and say, thank you, Father, for not letting me build the temple? Are we going to pout? Say, oh, well, I wanted to build the temple. Who's, God's not going to let oh, Why is God not going to let me build the temple? I want to do this for God. Fine. And we, we go off in a huff. <laughs> if I can't build the temple, then, then, then I'm just not going to do anything. That's it. I quit. I'm done. I'll show God. I was going to do all these great things for God, and he's not going to let me do this. So what kind of a selfish temper tantrum spoiled brat is that? No, it's with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So you're giving it to him. You're thankful. Say, Father, if this is your will, I thank you for it. If you have a will better than mine, show that to me as well. I'll be thankful for that as well. Because I know however you respond to this prayer, however you provide, however you shape my circumstances, it's your design to glorify your son. I don't want anything less than that. All right, then... With that kind of prayer life, with that kind of like-mindedness with God, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right? Then you're able to relax about it and say, I gave it to the Lord. He's going to choose to answer in his timing and in his wisdom. I'm going to quit dwelling on all those other issues. I gave that to him already. That's his department. He'll deal with that. Meanwhile, I've got other things I should be dwelling on, like verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, okay? Because I've surrendered all those other matters to the Lord in prayer, I'm now free. I'm free from any of that. And now I can dwell on the things that really matter. If there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the god of peace will be with you that's probably the final application on this the uh, emphasis there on practice these things as if uh, you know intake is sufficient no you got to have the inhale and the exhale you got to learn the word you got to live the word there's got to be the application and uh, you know if all you're doing is just learning 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 and you're never living it you're never applying it then don't be all shocked if well, why is the god of peace not with me well, he expects you to be living what you're learning. All right, so there's the context there. And Solomon is the vivid example of failing in this regard. Solomon failed to watch over his heart. And that's a big red flag for all of us because, you know, are we ever going to approach the, the degree of wisdom that Solomon himself had? All right. 
Solomon had a degree of wisdom, a, a, a quantity or quality of wisdom. Now, he didn't have the whole council like we have. I think we've got the, the Greek canon and we've got the indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've got a portfolio of assets Solomon never knew about. But even so, we look at his wisdom and how he blew it. We look at Satan and his wisdom. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, we're told, and he blew it. So uh, I use these as admonishments that if, if Satan can fall with all his wisdom and if Solomon can go stupid with all his wisdom, um, I, I better just day by day throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, uh, say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief, right? So First uh, Kings 11, Solomon didn't guard his heart. Solomon didn't apply what he wrote in Proverbs chapter 4 about my son or Proverbs chapter 5. And the warning about women and how they, they hunt for souls, how they will seduce the heart. And we read it here. King Solomon, uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, it seems to be that she was his first wife and should have been um, only, right? Um, but along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel. And this is why it's even worse, because God had warned them. In Scripture had warned them. David had warned them. How many warnings do you need? From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. All right, so... If, if you're warned against associations, well, goodness, what, what could be worse than marriage, right? Of all the associations that, that poison your, your thinking, that poison your heart, that poison everything, right? Because now you're adding uh, all kinds of other attachments, physical attachments, sexual attachments, emotional attachments. I mean, it's bad enough. Any association, if it's a business partnership or any, any other kind of association is going to have the, the damage, and they were warned against it let alone the romantic entanglements. Goodness. So Solomon held fast to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. They were not elevated to princess status. Okay, And uh, his wives turned his heart away. And that's what he was warned about. That's why, uh, well, we see it here. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Now, is that because he was old? Was, it, was that a particular vulnerability in his old age? Or it's just the time, set, the time frame for when it happened? He kept a handle on things for a while anyway, but as he was warned, the polygamy uh, did the damage. So uh, he tur- uh, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. He lost his eagerness. He lost his delight. He lost, you know, you start to add other things in addition to the syncretism of idolatry with, with worship. So his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And this is why I don't think we go from active positive volition to active negative volition just like that. I believe it's a long slide. And there's a spectrum on that. Years ago, John, uh, Pastor John Eichmann taught that, the, the volition spectrum. From active, negative, active positive to active negative and a spectrum in between. Because before you ever get to negative, you're, you're kind of in the, what it says here, not wholly devoted, partly devoted, somewhat devoted, 
kind of positive, all right? And uh, it was termed by Pastor Eichmann, it was termed as a passive positive volition, all right? A passive positive volition. Well, okay, I'm still positive, but eh. occasionally other priorities step in. Occasionally there's other things going on. It's not an absolute priority. And then when does it tip the line, right? From passive positive to passive negative, okay? Now you're barely into the negative volition side of things, but you're not entirely aggressive about it. It's still kind of passive until you continue that slide even more, until you become the active opponent of what God's doing. You become outright hostile to the will of God on that point of the spectrum. All right. Well, that's what we see here. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And that's the thing. Wholehearted devotion doesn't mean you're sinless, doesn't mean you're perfect. David still messed up. But it was that wholehearted devotion that caused him when he was exposed to immediately confess and throw himself on the Lord's mercy and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Yeah, she's a piece of work. And after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And and you say, well, you know, Yahweh, he's got his Sabbath and I'll do that on Saturday, but you know, Friday night, that's the that's Ashtoreth night, okay? And just, are you going to try to have all these other things? What about commandment number one that says you don't have those other gods, <laughs> right? He's the Lord your God. He's the one. He's the only. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully as David had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Hamash. You see, once you start making these compromises, where does it go? It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. What's Hamash about? What's Moloch about? By the time you reach in this level, you're, you're doing child sacrifice. You're doing a lot of horrible things. The detestable idol of Moab on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem. That's kind of sad. That's the Mount of Olives. You're going to defile the Mount of Olives? All right, well, he did. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Well, you gotta keep the gotta keep the little lady happy, right? Otherwise she's gonna nag you, she's gonna nag you, she's gonna nag you. And when you got a thousand of them you're trying to what are you gonna do? <coughs> well <coughs> goodness. All right. So, verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. All right? It doesn't say he was angry because he built the Chemosh idol or he built the, the, uh, the Asherah pole. Or it wasn't the deeds, it was the attitude behind the deeds. Okay? Everything else just flowed from that. His heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him (coughs) twice. All right. So there's a vivid example. And if he can blow it, we can blow it. We need to be on guard against that. When the heart is protected, the mouth, eyes, and feet will reflect that. As happened in Solomon's case, as can happen in a positive case, if the heart is where it needs to be, um, 
parents can relax over a whole lot of other things their teenagers might be involved with. <laughs> All right? And, and there's less fear involved because the parents know where the heart is. And so in verse 24, we have the mouth. In verse 25, we have the eyes. In verses 26 and 27, we have the feet. And we have the message of our Lord in Matthew 12 and Matthew 15 that I think spells out um, the truth that uh, correlates with this, I think, very well. So let's look at these. Remember, uh, verse 23 again is watch over your heart uh, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. I thought I had notes on the springs of life. I guess I don't. I did. I used to. Huh. Okay. Um, Well, let's look at mouth, eyes, and feet. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. That's not for us. All right? We're not the crafty ones. We're not the ones that are trying to talk our way out of problems. We're not the ones that are trying to talk other people into things. That that, that manipulative, deceitful pattern, that's not our Lord. Our Lord is speaking the truth in love. The adversary is the one that has all the crafty communication and all the deception. So put away from you a deceitful mouth, put devious speech far from you. And that, like with all the rest of this, is just a reflection of where your heart is. Why do you feel like you got to lie? Why do you got to be deceptive about it? What's motivating these words? So there's the mouth. The eyes. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Why are your eyes roaming around? You know, why does a why does a husband have a roving eye? Why does a wife have a roving eye? Why do why do any believers have any roving eye looking around checking out? Is the grass really greener on the other side? What difference does it make? Where are you? What's, where's God put you? Are we keeping our eyes straight on the Lord? Well, if that's where your heart is, that's where your eyes are going to be. There's a reason why your eyes are wandering. And then there's your feet in verses 26 and 27. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You know, if your eyes are fixed straight ahead and you're walking straight ahead, you're following after the Lord, that's where your eyes are supposed to be fixed, right? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, then you don't have to check it out. You don't have to worry about your feet. You're not looking for the stumbling blocks. God's taking care of that. So the feet follow if the heart is appropriately protected. Now let's see how Jesus adapted this. Matthew chapter 12 and then Matthew chapter 15. We get to the gospel record and I think much of what the Lord taught came out of wisdom literature, came out of Psalms and Proverbs. I think uh, his Beatitudes are right out of the Proverbs. I think much of what he taught in the parables could have, uh, had he been on earth a thousand years earlier, would have ended up in wisdom literature of the Hebrew canon. As it is, it ends up here in the Greek canon. All right, Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. Here he's pronouncing woe, rebuking the Pharisees here. I guess verse 33. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Why do we call it an apple tree? Because it produces apples. That's right, yeah. Why don't we call it a banana tree? 
Well, because it's the, the tree over there that produces the bananas, that's what we call a banana tree. And, and the tree is known for what it does, what it produces, the orange tree, you know, etc. Um, the a good tree is going to bear good fruit. The bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. This is a general rule consistent with Proverbs, consistent with wisdom literature. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. See, and that's just like what we're talking about in Proverbs 4. You've got the heart in verse 23, and that is what lies behind the mouth in uh, verse 24. All right? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If the heart is pure, what do you, how do you think that's going to be expressed? If the heart is poisoned, how do you think that's going to be expressed? If you're hearing this vile stuff coming, well, where is that coming from? You know, you, you find out where the heart is very quickly. You find out you're, you're talking to a brother, you're talking to a sister, and you're, you're, you're trying to explore, you're trying to fellowship in spiritual things. You're saying, hey, uh, give me a Bible verse. You know, were you in the Word this morning? Uh, where were you today? And then, well, I haven't gotten to it yet today. Oh, all right. Well, where were you yesterday? Oh, well, I didn't get to it yesterday either. Well, all right. When's the last time you were in the Word? You got a verse for me? Or you start talking about different components. What's your, what's, you know, a dwell on the essence box. What's your favorite uh, attribute of God? You know, and I want to talk about sovereignty or you want to talk about omnipotence or let's talk about love or whatever. And then just find very quickly where their heart is. If you find that it's like pulling teeth, that you're scraping to hold up your end of the conversation because they're not holding up any end of their conversation. All right. It's very, very clear where the heart actually is on a daily basis, moment-by-moment basis, all right? Then you turn to politics or the weather or current events or sports or you start talking about LeBron James and the NBA Finals. Oh, man, then they're all over. They spend 20 minutes telling you all about how the referees were ripping them off last night and the bad calls and, and you know, they, they've got the whole thing lined up. You say, okay. So you can, you can give me 20 minutes on LeBron James and you can't give me two minutes on eternal life. Or what's your favorite eternal security verse? Or when you think of you know, any verse that applies to um, my sins being forgiven. What, you, you got a verse on that? Hmm, let me think, let me think, let me think, let me think. But you know he was 9 for 11 at the free throw line last night. Okay? Just an indicator. It's just an indicator. Verse 35 of Matthew 12. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And so we have the pattern there. Okay? Over to chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 15. Verses 18 through 20. Here, um, interestingly enough, they're they're angry with him. There's an earlier context for this. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And the Pharisees had this very elaborate purification ritual that they put themselves under. And they, they held themselves above 
you know, the, the non-observant Jews. They put themselves above or separate. From, that's what Pharisee means is separate. So they were separate from those the hoi polloi of the typical Jewish person. And they created this, this system of, of, of righteousness that they could do this and, do, and keep all this. They were never under any obligation. The cleansing rituals were, are you talking about the, in the law for the priests and the high priest and the Levites? They're the ones that had cleansing rituals for, for their temple observance and their, their tabernacle operations and all the rest of that. But, you know, just a random Jewish believer, he wasn't required to go through all this liturgical ritual and all that. That was invented by the, by the, the Pharisaical school. And so he's got an answer for him. He says, well, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? <laughs> you know, you create this Pharisaic Judaism and you're, you're breaking Mosaic law. And they didn't seem to like that very much. Um, and the disciples say, and, and then he goes on to say, well, hear and understand. Verse 10, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. He said, you're all wrapped up about all these things. And uh, it's, it's just lip service. He says in verse 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So yeah, they keep all the liturgical things. They keep all the dietary restrictions, and they don't eat pork, and they don't eat shellfish, and they do eat this, and they do eat that. And, and externally, they are law observers. None of it's by faith. All of it's by works. None of it's from the heart. It's all worthless. And he says, you know, you're breaking the law. You're law breakers by your legalistic law keeping. It's not what enters into the mouth. It's not the fact that you've never had a pork chop. Okay? What's coming out of your heart? Jesus says that's the big deal. So, what proceeds out of the mouth is what defiles the man. So the disciples, I love this in verse 12, they came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Oh, I offended them, huh? I, Jesus doesn't seem very concerned about that here in this, in this context. So he answered and said, oh, well, not my issue. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. This can't help that. I'm speaking the truth. I'm serving my Father. And if the truth offends them, the truth offends them. So then Peter says, well, explain the parable to us. Are you still lacking in understanding also? I mean, Jesus expected the Pharisees to miss out on it. But Peter, come on, you should know this. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? <laughs> I guess with Peter, you've got to get a little blunt, right? All right, Peter, you eat, you chew, you swallow, you... You eliminate it, okay? That's how food works. But the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, you know, to, to, to break some rule of legalism does not defile the man. When the heart is protected, if your heart is being molded, and that's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, if you are being renewed in, the, in your thinking, then you, if you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you are not being conformed to this age. That is the promise. And if you're not being renewed, then you are being conformed. There's no way to avoid it. 
you cannot help but be conformed to this age if you're not engaged in that transformation process according to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. All right. Point F. Evil is on both the left and the right. And Satan doesn't care. You can turn left, you can turn right. He's good either way. Just get off the path. Get off the straight and narrow. Evil is on both the left and the right. Any alternative course to the will of God the Father is evil. I like the way they couch it with alternative, right? Well, it's an alternative lifestyle. Or, well, it's just... No, alternative means evil. All right? The plan of God is right. You know, it'd be like Adam and Eve partaking of the tree of alternative operations. No, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. This uh, right and left expression is used throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5.32, Deuteronomy 28.14. This is where we're going to wrap it up because that's the last slide anyway for the chapter. But um, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5.32 says, So you shall observe... Let's see. Do I want to back up? Yeah, verse 32. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God had commanded you. You shall not turn to the aside, to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live... See, there's the life benefit we see in Proverbs that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. The temporal benefits to walking right in the eyes of the Lord. All right? So you're not grumbling at the end of your life like Jacob before Pharaoh saying, few and unpleasant have been the years of my sojourning, nor have they attained to the years of my fathers. Well, there's a pathetic testimony at the end of your life. Now, how about full of days and satisfied with life? gathered to his fathers as Abraham was, as Isaac was. There's the positive examples. Jacob was a wreck at the end of his life. All right. So, not to the right nor to the left. Still in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the next generation has to hear the same thing that the generation before them had to hear. 28.14 Do not turn aside from any of the words which I am commanding you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. See, when you're off the beaten track, what are you really doing? As it says in Timothy, that you fall away from the faith doing what? Paying attention to uh, deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. When you're drifting from the plan of God, it's not. there's no neutral, there's no middle ground. You are serving the adversary. So if you turn to the right or to the left, you are going after other gods to serve them. Even if the other god is just simply yourself. The idolatry of self. How pathetic is that? I think I'm the most pathetic god that's ever been conceived. The, the, the deity of me. How, how pathetic is that? Joshua 1.7 in the next generation. How, how possibly can Joshua fill Moses' shoes? How in the world? I mean, Moses, he's the lawgiver. Moses is the great man of God. Moses is the one that brought him out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea. How in the world is Joshua going to follow that? 
Well, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Just keep your eyes on the Lord. Do what you're supposed to do. The Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. Anyway, there's also Joshua 23, 6, as he's urging the uh, nation of Israel after the conquest. Joshua 23, 6. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right nor to the left. Why is this all so redundant? Okay. Every generation is given the same thing. Moses was given this. Joshua was given this. The generation after Joshua was given this. Uh, I'm giving it to my kids. I hope they give it to their kids. My dad gave it to me. All right. There's nothing new. It's the same from generation to generation. God is the faithful one. And the neat thing about it is that we're not preaching at our kids to do something that we're not doing. We're living the same life and we're telling them to live. We're walking the same walk. 2 Kings 22.2. Here's a good king. Good King Josiah. 2 Kings 22.2. Wish there were more of him in between. Of all the kings that followed Solomon, many... So many, some were good, some were bad. But Josiah is the one that's spelled out here is shining higher than maybe some of the other ones. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jadada, uh, Jadida, I guess, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right nor to the left. That's his description. Isaiah 30 and verse 21. We just had this a couple weeks ago. In Isaiah 30. Here's a promise, and this is, this is kind of fun. O people in Zion, inhabitant in, Jer- in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you. At the sound of your cry, when he hears it, he will answer you. That's how close the Lord's going to be to Israel, to the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Can you imagine? All the Jewish people, they're going to be in prophetic office through the millennial kingdom. And that little voice right behind them, this is the way, this is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. You will defy your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. So that little voice behind them throughout the millennial kingdom. (coughs) Any alternative course to the will of God the Father is evil. And I tell you, if you get involved in this, it becomes consuming. (coughs) Genesis 6.5 and Genesis 8.21. I'll have to close with this. Remember, the path of light, when you're on that path, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter the longer you're on it. Same thing with the path of darkness. The longer you're on it, darker, 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 darker to where it's now consuming. As it says in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
every, only, continually, every intent. That's why the attitude behind the thinking is so important. That's why the Word of God judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The attitude behind the thinking, as well as the thinking itself. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 8 and verse 21. Um, Yep. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So, so much for the clean slate philosophy of this world that, oh, we're just born pure and clean as the wind-driven snow, and it's only our culture and our society and our environment and capitalism that makes us evil and wicked and bad and, and so forth. No, we're born sinners in Adam from our youth. The intent of the heart is evil from his youth. All right. Well, this wraps up chapter 4. We'll get to chapter 5, like I say, not next week, but in two weeks. And uh, you'll note, we repeat the admonition to be eager, to give attention and incline your ear. And uh, the reason why is because of the adulteress and her lips, in verse 3. The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. So the young man's got to be guarded against that. The young woman has to be guarded against the slick seducer. And it goes both directions. We'll talk about that. So uh, anyway, there we have it. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time today. Thank you for sustaining uh, my speaking voice through the entirety of this hour. Just give you the praise and glory for all you do. Open up our eyes to the truth, Father. Uh, Humble us before the admonitions that your word provides so that we would guard our hearts. And if there's realms that we're sloppy in, if there's realms that we're not diligent with, then, Father, make it clear that uh, that we've got to We've got uh, to remedy that, Father. We've got to be diligent to guard our hearts. Um, Open our eyes to these applications. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.